This is S.G. Brown, author of Breathers, Faded, and Lucky Bastard, and you are listening to Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week's review, um, long time coming. How long has it been since we reviewed a book by Christopher Moore? Ooh, sir, uh, Sacre Blue came out, ooh, that's almost two years ago now, I think. Yeah, I uh, I actually remember when you used to be able to throw out episode numbers back when you used to care about this podcast. You remember back, that? Back when there weren't more than 200 episodes to remember? <laughs> yeah, like episode five, you're like, no, no, I'm sure that was episode three. Um, <laughs> oddly enough, I did I mention this on the last episode, that our booked podcast Gmail picture is us with Christopher Moore? You did. Obviously, we don't do a lot of updating on that profile. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, um, Serpent of Venice, the follow-up. I don't even know if I'll say it's a sequel. It's more of a follow-up, right, to Fool? I mean, a little bit of, yeah, it's not yeah. a direct sequel, but right. yeah. Completely a standalone book if you want to read it that way, but uh, a little bit about Christopher Moore in case you live under a rock, a very unfunny rock. Christopher Moore is the author of 11 previous novels, Practical Demon Keeping, Coyote Blue, Bloodsucking Fiends, Island of the Sequin Love Nun, The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove, Lamb, Fluke, The Stupidest Angel, A Dirty Job, You Suck, and Fool. He lives in San Francisco. Two things. That's the best bio in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized recently that uh, without even, I don't even think I was even a goal, uh, I actually have read everything that Christopher Moore has written. What's your favorite Christopher Moore book? Oh, that's tough, but I'm d- dirty job. Off the top of my head, that's probably what I would go with. Really? Oh, Lamb. I love Lamb so much. Yeah, dirty job, dude. All right. Well, tell us about this book. Maybe this is your new favorite Christopher Moore book. Yeah, maybe it is. We'll find out. Here's a synopsis for Serpent of Venice, uh, which we pulled from Amazon, as always. Venice, a long time ago, three prominent Venetians await their most loathsome and foul dinner guest, the erstwhile envoy... From the Queen of Britain, the rascal fool Pocket. This trio of cunning plotters, the merchant Antonio, the senator Montresor... I, this is the weird thing when you read stuff and you never have to say it out loud. Brabantio? Brabantio? I like the way you said that. And the naval officer Iago? Iago? Iago, yeah. Iago? Mm-hmm. We really prepared for this. Have lured Pocket to a dark dungeon promising an evening of... Spirits and debauchery with a rare Amontillado sherry and Brabantio's beautiful daughter Portia. But their evening is, of course, bogus. The wine is drugged. The girl isn't even in the city limits. Desperate to rid themselves once and for all of the man who has consistently foiled their grand quest for power and wealth, they have lured him to his death. How can such a small man be such a huge obstacle? But this fool is no fool. Ha ha ha. I added the... Fake laughter there. And he's got more than a few tricks and hand gestures up his sleeve. Greed, revenge, deception, lust, and a giant but lovable sea monster combined to create another hilarious and bawdy tale for modern comic genius Christopher Moore. We don't frequently skip to the end end of a book um, this early, but um, this is a kind of mashup of Othello and uh, The Merchant of Venice, which you may have guessed a little bit by the title. Now, although Rob and I recently reviewed a book that was, uh, you know, based on a journal from Shakespeare himself, I, I have no, I have nothing on Shakespeare. You got anything on any of this? Um, I've heard the titles before. Yeah. I knew um, Othello was black. That I didn't even know. 
yeah, yeah, I did know that. But beyond that, um, I actually had to, to read the afterword by the author to know that this was from two different. To understand the, yeah. I yeah, will say I really like that board game, Othello. Did you ever play that? I did. And, uh, and, and I think there were black pieces in that, too. There were definitely lots of black pieces. I was yeah. damn good at that game. Yeah, that game is racist. It's very racist. It's all blacks and whites. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a, a mashup um, with and a lot of this apparently actual Shakespearean um, stuff. Like a lot of the story, a lot of the players um, not only were actual, but some of the stuff I guess is called from those two plays. Right. The events that take place um, are are kind of combined together from the two stories and a little dusting of the cask of Amontillado by uh, Edgar Allan Poe thrown in there um, being walled that's mm-hmm. in the beginning when he get he got walled in and everything yep not like Walden yep. not like Thoreau's Walden, Walden but like wall, walled in <laughs> Walden books oh um, I remember those yeah. go on and then I guess that uh, for anybody who's questioning how these can be a mashup um, he does acknowledge that these stories actually took place a couple hundred years apart um, but you know what? It, there's a fool and a giant sea creature and a monkey named Jeff. So you know what? Just deal with it. Yeah. So um, we could. I mean, we can go to the story in a minute. But that afterward uh, was really awesome because he really explained. Like for anybody who knows their stuff when it comes to Shakespeare, they could be um, a little frustrated by the fact that the the stories, like you said, take place hundreds of years apart. But also. Um, the previous book, Fool, which um, has our main character Pocket, uh, took place far beyond before either of those. So he had to adapt those stories to an earlier time period, um, and then use historical like wars and skirmishes that took place during that time and adapt it that way. So um, it, it it was really cool to see um, what he did to try and be true to the story, but also true to what could reasonably expect it at the time that he, he set the book in. Yeah, I guess what we're trying to say is if you're looking for historical accuracy, then no Christopher Moore. Right. <laughs> Lamb. Lamb was so goddamn good. Sorry. Lamb, Lamb was, was very good. I'm probably going to talk about Lamb a lot while we review this book, because Lamb was really, really good. I'm all like, what happened in this book is, and you just interrupt, you're like, remember in Lamb when... <laughs> yeah. There's a dragon when in Biff Lamb. wanted to have sex with Mary. Yeah. I tell Jesus that all the time. One day I'm going to be your stepfather. Because it's hilarious. <laughs> all right, so the, uh, the synopsis really covers a lot of what happens at the very beginning of the book, the setup of the, of the initial betrayal. Um where these three people basically plot to remove uh, Pocket from the equation so that they can get on with their, like, merchantly greedy machinations. Um, but that's not the only person that they have to get out of the way. Right, Liv? Their plan kind of involves getting Pocket out of the way. Um, but a whole lot of other things have to fall into place for them to achieve basically a, a seat in the Senate is kind of the, the end run of what they're trying to do. And really, while Christopher Moore in general is, is very lighthearted um, in, in the way his books are written, the book starts out kind of really a little bit darker because uh, early on in the book you find out that um, the Queen, who he was briefly married to, or they hooked up at the beginning of fool basically uh 
died. And so uh, he's somewhat of a widower and just really inconsolable with grief. So our fool, not only is he mourning the loss of his queen, but then he is tricked and, um, you know, they try to kill him. So stuff starts out really, really rough at the beginning of this book. Yeah, but as often is the case, and, and not that there weren't a couple of moments in Lamb <laughs> that uh, became very sad and maybe a little teary-eyed, um, you know, Pocket kind of offsets um, all of that terrible stuff with just his personality, which is um, uh, abrasive and offensive, um, but just hilariously funny, much like uh, most other Christopher Moore characters. To illustrate that, I'm going to jump into a quote a little bit early. This is uh, um, Pocket talking to uh, the Montresor before he gets walled up, before his he is poisoned and, uh, and ambushed. Um, Your motto couldn't be more Scottish if it were painted blue and smelled of burning peat and your ginger sister. He was talking about how his family's, the Montresor's family had stolen their motto from the Scottish, which was like highly offensive to, I guess, some Venetian uh, people who would want to be noble. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's funny that you went there because I was about to also kind of launch into a quote, which is more from like the introduction of the book to kind of explain how Christopher Moore um, approaches um, uh, the Venetians, I guess. Strangely, although most of the characters are Venetian, everybody speaks English and with an English accent. Unless otherwise <laughs> described, assume conditions to be humid. It is a, it is addressed by characters subtly a couple times in the book, mm-hmm. too, how everybody's speaking English, or they're uh, talking about their accents. Yep. In and it. it w- Go on. In it. That, that in it. I guess I can't say Oh, right. in it. Yeah, in it. And then actually um, at one point um, to push things even further into kind of the absurd, uh, Christopher Moore has uh, basically as a character in the book is the chorus, which uh, um, I don't know if Olivia's, I read the actual uh, print book um, where the lettering for the chorus actually appears in a different color uh, text than the rest of it. But uh, the chorus basically just narrates parts parts of the book, but is essentially a character that at certain times throughout the book different characters interact with talk to and um it is acknowledged at one point that the chorus had like you know very egregiously broken the fourth wall i think so um there are some liberties taken with your typical story narrative style um and definitely very very funny but um in in the tradition of christopher moore the story itself is really compelling and good yeah i mean it follows a a I don't know, kind of, I want to say standard, I guess. Just kind of the standard plot that, that you know, Pocket and, and with some help from other people try to foil, um, you know, power plots. So again, I don't know how close that is to the actual storyline of, of The Merchant of Venice. I'm assuming it is fairly close. Um, so the story is good, but I think that Christopher Moore's strength in most cases um, revolves around character and character relationships. So yeah. Some of the best stuff in this book um, is between uh, um, Portia and her her um, I, I guess the the what do you call that the her lady in waiting or oh, something like, the, basically her maid slash right. assistant. Um, their relationship is great because Portia doesn't even realize how much this other 
woman hates her. And the woman is like openly hostile to her before she's just so dismissive she doesn't even notice any of it. And some of the best lines in that in the whole book are between the two of them. For sure. Narissa. Narissa. That's Narissa. Um, and, and really, anybody who, uh, at least from reading uh, Moore's notes, anybody who's familiar with the stories of Othello and the Merchant of Venice um, pretty much know what happens uh, in this book because he takes the main plot points between the two and, and combines them uh, pretty pretty seamlessly in my you know estimation. Um, so there's really not much we can talk about about story, but there's still plenty to talk about. Yeah, Marco Polo makes an appearance in this book. And although not funny in itself, the ability for people to play Marco Polo and for Marco Polo to comment on how annoying that is. <laughs> it's pretty damn it's awesome. It's just goddamn great. Yeah. There's a there's a sea monster, which is the serpent. Uh, the the titular character, the serpent of Venice makes an appearance uh, early on in the book and pocket uh, chained chained to a wall and walled in um, left to his death is is kind of taken advantage of by this uh, sea animal which is kind of interesting but then it plays a, a pretty uh, solid part in the in the story and, and how things turn out yeah you know so it's multifaceted um, you know we talked and joked a little bit about Othello and like racism um at, at the top of the podcast, but he even addresses this in there because there is a there's a bit of uh, I don't know fun poking at Othello for being black. Um, there is uh, Shylock, the the Jew, who um, is accosted by basically everybody in this book, at least verbally, um, for being a Jew, and apparently it's a kind of a big deal from the actual mer- uh, Merchant of Venice story. You know him defending himself and and his you know. His, his birth into Judaism and um, so I mean there are some other things there that, that appear but of course they're kind of treated in a in a more comical sense than but like than given, it's, today, due, you know, given so. it's due respect like um, he didn't take the he, he did uh, inject humor into uh, serious elements of the book but not in a way that he didn't take those elements seriously he did them justice in, in the message that they were trying to get across, um, the Jews and how they were kind of a separate race and, and, and not a separate race, and how they were kind of a separate class and everything um, within within Venice, but um, also throughout Europe and everything. The persecution at the time that he said this is, you know, they were basically um, second class or not even class citizens, or they were actually being kind of pushed out of most, like a lot of countries and stuff. So, um, while at the surface level, the, the, the persecution of the, of the Jews was taken very lightly. When you see Shylock as a character, um, really f- being focused on when he gets to talk and when he, when he actually gets to the meat of, of what he wants his vengeance to be in the story, it's, it's really compelling just how there's one, there's one paragraph where he basically lists off all of the, the, the shit on a daily basis that he endures just to survive. And it's not until you hear him say those things that you realize exactly how bad life for, you know, the Jewish people at that time was in Venice. And that was even supposed to be one of the places that they were not as persecuted. So 
um, Moore does sprinkle in that serious stuff really, really well, even though it's kind of dusted with, uh, you know, the, the, the humor on top of it. Agreed. I agree. Um, huge, huge cast of characters, of course, being based on a Shakespearean play. I, I guess I kind of expected that. Not that I know much about Shakespeare. I just know there's a lot of people with hard to pronounce names. Um, so one of the things that I found missing, um, if you were a fan of Fool, um, you might remember his, uh, his little entourage, which was far more prevalent, if I remember correctly, in Fool. Um, Drool, his, his kind of apprentice. Um, Jones, the stick puppet that he's always got with him, a little jester head, and, uh, and Jeff the monkey, um, kind of weirdly absent throughout most of this book, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was expecting to have more of them, I, and, and I really cherished the parts that they were in because they were fantastic, but it was kind of weird that, um, I mean, it had to be more than half of the book that they just weren't present. And he explained it away story-wise, so it wasn't like it didn't fit in the story. Just, you know, one of the things I was looking forward to, I just remember the Jones being one of my favorite things about Fool. And kind of seeing him cut for the majority of the book was a little jarring, I guess. It was nice to see the contrast, though, of how strongly he actually cared for them and how far he would go to bring them back into his life, which was mm-hmm. um, which was cool. And when they were in the book, man, they just they just made it, if you ask me. Agreed. Yeah, I don't know how much else we could say about this. Um, I didn't realize it was going to be such a difficult Christopher Moore book to talk about. I guess it's because we're <laughs> far over our heads as far as the Shakespeare uh, stories go. And um, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a departure from the way he usually writes, but it's definitely not as smooth of a thing to kind of explain casually, I guess. That's correct. And one, one thing that I noticed, um, another absence that is one of the things that I personally, and I know that quite uh, a large percentage of Christopher Moore's readers really look forward to, is character crossovers. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that too, other than obviously the characters that he could cross over with from Fool. Um, What? I don't know. I mean, it is a little bit of a period piece. That would limit it, but um, at the same time, you have Lamb, you have um, creatures and other characters that are not as bound by our lifeline. Yeah. yeah, they're supernatural, so they might live longer. I mean, you got fucking angels. You got uh, monsters. So there was stuff that could be legitimately explained in that time period that, that we didn't see, or at least it wasn't obvious enough that I picked up on it. And maybe I just haven't read more in long enough to be able to, to pick up on that, but... I was expecting some more character crossovers on just the stuff from the the Fool book. Yeah, and and it is one of the best parts of of his work, I think, is that how he's kind of written them all into a very, I don't know, not one universe, I guess, but, you know, to be able to see that throughout his books. Dude, vampires? Yeah. He may have been pushing it a little bit Shakespeare, but I guess he did have a sea (laughs) creature, so... He did have a sea monster, a dragon, basically. Which, yeah, which could have been. We don't know. I don't think it was, but could have been the lust lizard. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that, too. But then the lust lizard had that pheromone that made everybody want to bone each other. And you knew he wouldn't, like... If he had a a monster in his book that, like, made everybody want to have sex, there was no way he was going to not use that. I don't think Christopher Moore has that kind of control. (laughs) 
that could very well be. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the bottom line is, and you bring up an interesting point because I kind of forgot about that portion of it. Um, he would have, he could have, and he would have explained somehow how in the future that ability would come to the creature yeah. if it was a crossover. If that makes sense. That's true. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. So it could have been. He could have done could it. Have could have been, but wasn't. All right. Maybe that's going to take a star off. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you never know. You ready to do some quotes? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, here is, uh, I mentioned the relationship between Nerissa and Portia, which um, uh, I just absolutely loved. And uh, here's a, an example of that. Um, Portia's kind of uh, complaining about um, not being able to, to sleep um, one night. And Nerissa replies with, Perhaps if you did something during the day, milady, lifted a finger maybe two in care of yourself, exhaustion would pleasantly overtake you and your slumber would be filled with the sweetest dreams. That was good stuff. Love it. All right, so here's a quick one. Oh, bugger the Pope. This was Cordelia talking to Pocket in, in somewhat of a flashback, and his response was, I think he already has someone to do that. And this quote is not so long after that, and, and they were just kind of having a fun conversation in the bedroom. And this is one of the serious notes that really kind of highlighted the, the sadness of, of losing Cordelia. I so adored when she let her warrior queen armor fall and came silly and giggling into my arms. It's pretty much the f- most serious and sincere you'll ever see from Pocket, I think. I would have to agree. And yes, his his love for her was very sad. And I guess I wasn't thinking about that. When you're talking about just how dark it is at times. Yeah. Anytime he kind of, you know, reminisces a little bit about her, it, it is very, very sad. Um, I am going to run off what could have been um, book theater had we have been better prepared. So this is a little bit of a longer one. Um, Pocket is explaining to somebody um, how <laughs> he's planning on stealing something. And he is going to use a pack of thieving monkeys. <laughs> Senor, I tell you, I have worked all my life in the training of the thieving monkeys, and I know they are equal to the task. They will ascend to the veranda, razor open the caskets with their clever monkey hands, reseal them, leaving them undetected, and report to me their contents, which I will report to you. How? I just bloody told you, Nitwick, they'll scale the bloody walls. No, no. How will they report? Bollocks, I hadn't thought out that bit. Hebrew, I explained. Your thieving monkeys speak Hebrew? No, of course not. You see, the Hebrew language is in its written form was originally developed from a series of stamps made from monkey paws. The entire alphabet can be printed with a monkey hand dipped in ink. That's how they'll report. It has always been so. You should see the inner walls of La Gudeca, maybe? Covered with their monkey profanities in Hebrew, I paused, breathless from my bullshit, and held forth Jessica's note again, pointing to the seal which was stamped with a menorah. See the four fingers on each side and the monkey thumbs on the side? <laughs> I, just, I love that. <laughs> and later on, that actually comes back in, in a kind of throwaway line where somebody says, well, you know, the monkeys understand Hebrew. And someone's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so. That was good. This one's a little bit longer, just like the humor of it. The Greeks believe the fates are three sisters. One is order, who spins out the linear thread of a life from the beginning. Another is irony, who gently cocks up the thread, marking it with some peculiar sense of balance, like justice, only blind drunk with a scale that's been bunged in the street so it never quite settles. And the third, inevitability, 
simply sits in the corner taking notes and criticizing the other two for being shameless slags until she cuts life's threads, leaving everyone miffed at the timing. That is good stuff. Yeah. More, you know, forget what we said about certain characters not appearing and, you know, no crossover and whatever. I mean, his strength is really in, in the kind of line-to-line and, and the humor that, that his stories bring. Sure. Um, here's another one I really liked. Um, Pocket is uh, trying to fend off a mob. Back, you pack of dogs, I called, pushing my way onto the balcony, before the moor has all your heads bobbing on pikes. I reached out my back collar for the puppet Jones, who is a vivid example of the fate of the piked head, except miniature and more handsome than most. <laughs> That's good. See, Jones just has to show up. The book gets better. Uh, at one point, Pocket's talking about um, being guilty of something with another character, and um, they're having a conversation about it. They make a, a reference to, again, I've talked about this before, um, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, the, the the part in the book about um, hanging an albatross around the neck to, to signify uh, the guilt of someone. Um, and <laughs> Pocket uh, names the wrong bird when he's making the reference and he gets corrected about it and they, they kind of go back and forth and this is the quote that I liked. Uh, actually, the whole conversation's great, but I'm not going to go through that hell. Well, you may choose whichever guilt fowl that you like strung around your neck, but mine is a crashing huge swan with an eye patch. That's good stuff. Um, again, my favorite characters. I mean, love Pocket, but the, his, his little entourage. And, and this is a, a conversation about Jeff the Monkey. Um, somebody that Pocket is with has been... Uh, is was been asked to be disguised so she says i don't need a disguise in genoa as no one here gives a lazy toss whether i'm a girl or not and besides it was either let him have at the hat in the sack or try to wear it while he was having at it either way some hat fucking was going to get done this seemed more discreet jeff having sex with hats again <laughs> yeah there's a line not or there's actually a quote that i had that was not too far after that um where after it's accepted that she had put the monkey in the bag so it could have sex with the hat, she's explaining that, like, the food that she grabbed for their dinner was also in there. So he <laughs> have to... Like, he, he was so casual about um, the monkey having sex with the hat, and then she kind of countered with, well, he's having sex with the hat in a bag with your, your dinner. <laughs> it was great. I'm going to do uh, two back-to-back just because it, it deals with repetition of words, which I, I think they kind of theme together well. This first one involves Shylock, his daughter Jessica, and Pocket. And Shylock is is accusing or upset with Pocket about something. He says the word you a bunch of times in a row, like you, 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 you. And uh, Pocket says to Jessica, run along, love. It appears that Papa's been stricken with an apoplexy of the second person, which just charmed the hell out of me. And then um, at a different part in the book, Othello proposes to... Uh, Desdemona and she says yes 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 oh my sweet Othello yes Jones the puppet says fucking French call that the little death and Pocket corrects him and says the little death you cockney knob and I don't think that's what all the yesing was about you know about the little death right yes yes I'm aware of the little death (laughs) I didn't realize that might have been from Shakespeare though (laughs) apparently it was William Shakespeare. 
I didn't know Shylock came from Shakespeare either, and I didn't know it was actually a guy's name. Um, I touched on this earlier, but Marco, um, they, they were talking about... Uh, they, they rescued Marco Polo from a jail. I don't think I'm really <laughs> spoiling anything here. And, um, you know, Pocket comments, or someone comments about, you know, must have been tough. And he says, uh, except for the children playing in the harbor, calling my name all day, it wasn't entirely unpleasant. And there's a scene where Pocket and... Uh, and drool, where where Pocket tries to get Marco Polo's attention and says Marco, and then Drool responds with Polo, and they go back and forth doing that, and it's just great stuff. Such antagonism. Mm-hmm. I have one more quote left. Um, another going back to serious because I mean I could quote funny all day long, and I, I had a ton more quotes than what I'm what I'm giving here, but a lot of them, like Livia said, one of the strengths is the interaction between characters, and a lot of my favorite parts are conversational. So there's multiple lines from different characters, and, and at the risk of, um, I don't ever want to do book to theater when it's Shakespearean content. <laughs> I just don't think that that's ever a road we want to walk down. So didn't want to do that. But here's a here's a really quick one that goes back to serious. You will only know your true enemies, Othello, when they reveal themselves by killing you. It's good stuff. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. I'm gonna end it off with one. And just because I like this as, a, as an example of, of parts, I think, where he was really trying for the Shakespearean lingo. <laughs> but, of course, in, in his own kind of way. What ho, respect Shylock. Wherefore, respect Shylock. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> Wherefore, respect Shylock. This isn't a quote, but there was one other thing that I noticed in the book. Is there's a, And I don't remember exactly what was going on. It had to do with... Um, um, blowing out candles at Christmas or something weird, but there's a character in there named Phyllis Stein. Phyllis Stein. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's kind of an, an obvious one, but I like to point that out. And yeah, the part uh, we didn't we didn't so, mention when we were actually talking about the story is that it's written in first person and third person. Yeah. That just occurred to me when I was reading through one of the quotes I didn't do. That yeah. Which I think that threw me off just the first time, and then the next time it came up, I was like, "Oh, that's just how it is," and then I was fine with it. the The tense shifting, or the I'm sorry, the perspective shifting didn't didn't really do anything. I don't think it did any harm. No, no, not at all. I actually kind of found it interesting. And then uh, it's mentioned in the afterward, but I thought it was kind of funny that um, more made some little kind of a more political social commentary by um because Othello was black um more made kind of a, a secret muslim joke in in kind of the tradition of of people accusing obama of not being american so and in the afterward he said he he kind of explained it and then he's like that's right i went there so kind of ties in with all that racism and stuff yeah that must have been a political thing so i didn't catch that oh um good you're not a birther nope don't even know what that is all right that's fine let's uh let's instead of talking about that uh why don't you kick off your wrap up all right um let me start off by saying (laughs) that when you've read and rob and i talked about this before the show i guess i've read nine maybe ten of christopher moore's books that there's no real way that I can be objective and not um, wrap this up and give it a series of stars based on how I feel about other books of his, like Lamb, for example. Um, 
very character driven for me. The characters are great and they were funny, but this this one was just a little off the mark for me. Um, there was only one book of his that I didn't finish, which was Fluke. Um, loved pretty much all the other ones, and this one just something about it, man, just didn't didn't I don't know so, something didn't sit right with me. So the story's there, and it's a mashup of Shakespeare, and perhaps I would have appreciated it a little more had I have had some prior knowledge of you know of the story, so I could appreciate the retelling. But um, there was just something kind of lacking there. That being said, um, Fool, Pocket, whatever you want to call him, um, is a fantastic character, and I would happily read four more books of his this week where he's the main character in them. So, um, kind of a little tough to rate, because as much as I like him, the story just didn't do a whole lot for me. There was kind of, like I said, an absence of some of the other characters I would have liked to have seen. Um, now, if I was reviewing this objectively... Um, versus uh, just any other book by any other author, uh, it would probably rank a little bit higher. Um, but for it being a Christopher Moore book, I'm going to go with three and a half stars on this one. That's astonishing. I'm going to not say it's an outrage, but a little bit shocked. Just going to say. I am too. Believe me. <laughs> wanted to love this book. <laughs> you wanted to? I wanted to. All right, well, here's what I have to say about it. Um, I've read everything by Christopher Moore, and um, I've essentially liked everything by Christopher Moore. I don't think that the uh, my ignorance of, of Shakespearean plays um, did anything to diminish the, the how much I enjoyed the book. Um, my only minor... Uh, complaints would be I would have liked to see a little bit more character crossover because like any junkie you know once you get a couple free tastes you just want to keep coming back for more and when you don't have it you're I don't know I'm not a junkie so I don't understand the analogy properly but you get what I'm going for Um, would have liked to see more character crossovers but uh, the story itself stands on its own the both the the serious which I think is more serious than than a, than in a average Christopher Moore book, and the humor, um, and like Livia said, the real winning part of, of a Christopher Moore book is the the little individual moments and the character interactions. That's where just all the value comes. Um, his dialogue is is wonderful, and it's it's simultaneously very very clever and um, humorous, and you walk away. Um, you know, I don't want to sound like super sappy or anything, but like better for it because like it's not just he like he's doing throwaway stories that don't mean anything. He's putting a very meaningful piece together in a, in a satirical and humorous way. Um, yeah, so overall, I don't really have any major objections about the book, and and I and I enjoyed it a lot. I was laughing out loud throughout, and. While it was kind of awkward to talk about, my memory of it and my overall impression is very good, so I'm going to go four and a half stars on this. It's the biggest split I think we've had in a while. I know, right? Can we just talk about Lamb now? No, we can't talk about Lamb now. <sighs> Let's travel back in time and review Lamb. When we invent time travel, uh, we have a lot of books to cut to go back and review, I think. <laughs> We invent time travel. We're done with this podcast. <laughs> That's true. We could just uh, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. I'm going to invest in Google and Apple, and just uh, go back to the normal present time and and live like a king. 
That's right. King who reads lots of books and isn't forced to talk about them to pass the time. I'm going to buy all of the publishers and make sure that none of the books I didn't like ever get to print. How's that? That's interesting. Interesting. I'd have to live without Twilight. <laughs> no, I can't. Well, you know, I probably would put the brakes on that, but I'd probably get you a copy just so that, you know, I, friends friends have special, you know, Aww, allowances that the common person. I, will, I, I, well, I guess that's kind of backwards, though, because I'm, I'm willing to save the majority of people, but not my friends. <laughs> so... Hey, speaking of things you're willing to do for friends, since we've got you on this topic, uh-huh. I, I hear that uh, Nikki Gerlane and and myself are both very excited about a new Anne Rice book. Can we get you to go back to the Anne Rice well? Are you being serious right now? Yeah. I mean, it was such a disaster last time. There was like was, werewolves but, with iPhones and stuff. Yeah, I know, but this is going to be a book about, and I don't know what the, pronoun- the proper pronunciation is, but Lestat, Lestat, however you pronounce it, it's going to be another Lestat book. People are very excited about this. This will be no wolf gift, I guarantee you. Uh, um, fine. We've got months. We've if, got months for me to work on you. But you were willing to, if you traveled back in time, you were willing to let Twilight exist for my pleasure. If if Nikki agrees to review the book with us, then I will do it. How's All that? right. I'm pretty sure that we can make that shit happen. Yeah. All right. Well, mark it. I said it on the podcast. It's uh, it's set in stone now. If Nikki agree- now, I have to listen tomorrow to see if it's left in because <laughs> I was okay with it. So you said I said it on the podcast. I'm like, crap. I'm gonna bring this up in four <laughs> months when this book comes out, and you're gonna be like, no, no, go back and listen. I never said that. I never said that. <laughs> Where's your proof? Um, yeah. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll go back to Anne Rice. Very cool. She's like 90 now, right? <clears throat> At least, if she's a day. Uh, it's going to be vampires with iPhones. Vampire. <laughs> with newer <laughs> iPhones than the werewolves have. Yep. Because absolutely. they're vampires and they're better. They are better. Um. So... I'm not going to, you know, because I realize it's hard to bring up, you know, your own thing. But I happened to notice just earlier this evening that there was a new column over at This Is Horror. Sounded a little familiar, the guy who wrote it, but I couldn't quite place him. Was that you? That's me. I have a monthly column at This Is Horror called Dead Pixels. Um, And by monthly, I mean um, about once a month, Michael Wilson has to beg me to finish writing the column that I am... Um, putting off and putting off and putting off. So uh, my sincere apologies to him for having to put up with that regularly. Uh, but I did write up a, a little piece on two new TV series um, that started recently. One's called Salem on a channel called WGN America, which I have no idea what that is. I've, I've heard of WGN. Can I tell you what that is? Because yeah. I had to do some research. WGN America is not available to those of us who live in Chicago, but it is owned by the WGN that is Channel 9. That's really weird. It's really weird. Well, I happened to be kind of flipping around on Hulu, and I just noticed uh, a TV show called Salem. And I was like, hello, what's this? And I checked it out, and uh, it's interesting so far. But the other thing, the one that I was much more interested in was uh, Penny Dreadful, the new TV series uh, on Showtime. With Josh Hartnett and uh, what's that guy, Timothy Dalton, um, taking place in Victorian London, 
featuring such characters as Dr. Victor Frankenstein. There's a bunch of goddamn vampires running around and some other stuff like uh, Dorian Gray, the Oscar, Oscar Wilde character. So uh, uh, it's interesting so far. It takes place in like the late 1800s, I think. Um, yeah, so it's around the Jack the Ripper time, too. So I've seen the first episode of Salem, and it is interesting. Although I had to read your article to find out that those were real people. <laughs> the prostitutes or the other ones? Any of the people who were real people. Yeah, Cotton Mather. Yeah, I, yeah no idea. No, no clue. So I'll probably learn a lot historically from watching Salem, so I'm sure it's very accurate. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't watch Penny Dreadful. Um, a, because Phineas Poe isn't in it. B, because I also saw the two-week early kind of release they did for people to watch online. And then yeah. I thought, well, it'll be like three weeks then before I can see episode two, so I'm just probably going to wait for its official release date. Yeah, I thought that too, but then I watched it anyway. I did that a couple of years ago when there was episodes of Californication available online early. And they had like they released like the first two episodes. I watched them, then I had to wait like four weeks for a new episode. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is just terrible. I'm not doing this anymore. So, Yeah, but if you're like me, that gives you four weeks to just keep re-watching the ones you've seen. Like, every yeah, week, I, I watch the, the new Hannibal episode like three times. I, I, don't, I don't understand how you can do that. Did I tell you I finished season <laughs> one of Hannibal? What? That's awesome. I actually watched it. I kind of marathon watched it a couple weeks ago. and uh, I got through season one, and I was starting season two. And I got an emergency call from work and had to go in. I haven't, uh, I haven't restarted season two yet. There's a lot going on in season two. It's a fantastic series. Uh, American Mary's in season two. She is, and so that is that alone is worth watching. There's just some other people that I were, I were excited about and was excited about. <laughs> Any rate. Um, you can check out Rob's Dead Pixels at thisishorror.co.uk. You know, the place you went to vote for uh, for a booked podcast and for the booked anthology. That's right. Um, but enough about me. You know, here at the Booked, we're all about wishing people happy birthdays. And there's a special person that we uh, care a lot about we don't really get to talk about very often. Um, but it was his birthday on the day of us recording this. Uh May, it's a holiday. May 1st, right? Yep. Holiday. Axel Tyree's birthday. Axel Tyree's 30th birthday. That's a milestone. Dirtieth, 30th. Dirtieth, dirtiest, 30th? Yeah, I have no idea. Dirty, dirty, 30? Let's just say dirty, 30. Dirty, 30. Um, we love you, Axel, but not enough to sing happy birthday to you. That's right. Um, so um, we love you, Axel, so much that we want you to go back to the episode where we sang happy birthday to Adam Gowan, which I don't remember which episode that was, but find it and then listen to that and then just pretend it's us singing to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. And Axel, you're our favorite Axel. You don't even have to compete like Adam does. Definitely, uh, hands down, her favorite Axel. And you're up against some serious competition, like yeah. Axel Foley, Axel Rose. Axel Rose. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's just those two. It's so. enough. That's enough, Axel. It is. It is enough. Rob. Yeah. How are you on fashion? How am I on fashion? Yes. Uh. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm like the least so fashionable my person. My understanding is 
My understanding is black is the new black. <laughs> oh, good stuff, sir. Yeah. Next week, um, we've mentioned this before on the podcast, I believe, but um, Dark House Press, with their first release, The New Black, a collection of um, what are some of the best neo-noir. God, we're going to have to throw that word around a lot next week, aren't we? Neo-noir um, stories. I'm going to read the back cover copy. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is from the advanced reader copy I got, so it might change by the time it's actually released. Forgive me if there anything's changed. Now, The New Black is the title of the anthology. It is a neo, it's a collection of neo-noir stories. Here we go. The New Black is a collection of 20 neo-noir stories exemplifying the best authors currently writing in this dark sub-genre. A mixture of horror, crime, fantasy, science fiction, magical realism, the transgressive and the, dis- and the grotesque, all with a literary bent. These stories represent the future of genre-bending fiction from some of the brightest and most original s- voices. So neo-noir is the new black, is what I'm getting out of it. Yes, yes, that is... <laughs> Yes, that is exactly what neo-noir means. I'm not a linguist. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that neo-noir more or less means new black, right? Yes, that's exactly what it means. Right. It's, it's French for new black, which if Axel Tyre was on the show celebrating his birthday with us, he could have told you that. See, I think nouveau means new, but I could be wrong. Those two years of French that I took in high school are just not doing me any good no, right you now. Know, maybe noir is just black. What's that? I, I, I don't, did I ever talk about this on the podcast? <laughs> The, the guy, the guy who was looking for black ink, and he looked at his girlfriend. He's like, "This one says it's noir," <laughs> and she goes, "That's black, you idiot." <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, this one's noir, 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 noir. Got some good names in this book, though: Stephen Graham Jones, Paul Tremblay, uh, Kyle Miner, Craig Clevenger. I'm just naming the ones that have been on our podcast. Kyle um, Miner. Has been on this podcast. He has. I know. Craig Walwork, Nick Corpon. Good stuff. Brian Evanson. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah. It's like a who's who of book podcast. That's right. Who's booked? How do we manage to make everything about us nowadays? You know what, though? I mean, a lot of it is about us. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, we are accurately representing this podcast. Yeah. It, we're, we bind. We're keeping everything together. We're like the glue. We're like the glue. You couldn't tell, but I made a hand gesture where I, I, I interlaced my fingers. And I tried to pull them apart, but I couldn't because of the glue. That's what I did. <laughs> You're right. I couldn't tell. <laughs> you couldn't see that. that. Kind of I just had to explain it. Theater of the mind, everybody. I was, I was doing pantomimes. Oh, man. How do we only do this once a week? But, <laughs> I know. All right, New Black coming up next week. Check it out. Um, it's probably going to be the last collection that we read for a long while because we're just going to collapse in exhaustion from reading short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. Me too. I started it this morning. I read Stephen Graham Jones' story, which is just totally fucked up. Stephen Graham, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was nothing before this podcast. I get it. I have a flash of a future where, um, like, there's no writing that's like, there's no writing that isn't somehow 
affected in some way by Stephen Graham Jones because as time goes on, more and more of what we talk about in the podcast has his name attached to it. And Livius was like, yeah, we, we can't le- read Jones for a while. Oh, there's this book that's coming out in two weeks. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So oh. Inescapable. All right, we're going to have to reel it back in because we have to go do another podcast where we can't be this silly. That's right. Crime Wave. All right. I haven't checked it out yet. The debut episode of uh, the two of us hosting Crime Wave has been up for a couple of weeks. Um, look for another one soon. 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 Might sound a little familiar. You may have heard bits and pieces of it here on Booked, but uh, we're off to Crime Wave. Catch us there. That's right. Uh, until next time, I am Rob Olson. And I'm Libya Stedden. Keep reading.